with that, I would like to say a very big welcome to this week's episode of Value Nigeria with Ajibola. How's your week been? Trust it's been a productive week for all of us. Last week on the podcast, we talked about the discipline to say no, and we shared a vision that this week we'll be doing a deep analysis into a select company, and we asked for entries from listeners. Thank you to everyone who took their time to send in an entry to us. We appreciate everything. We've taken a look at all the entries that were sent in, and the entry with the highest votes that going forward we'll be analyzing is Fidelity Bank. Now, Fidelity Bank, I don't know why it's caught a lot of interest amongst a lot of people, but a good number of the entries that we got were all for Fidelity Bank. So in fulfilling our promise, we'll be doing a deep dive into Fidelity Bank, doing a deep analysis into that company uh, to see if it's worth adding to our portfolio or if it isn't. Now, there are a couple of things I would just like to stress even before we go any further. That is the number one fact is that um, this podcast, we are not giving financial advice on this podcast. All we are doing is just to deliver some financial education, okay? So don't take whatever we discuss on this podcast as a buy or a sell opinion or a buy or a sell advice, okay? It's all for educational purposes. None of this constitutes financial advice. Now, um, the next thing I also like to say is that in looking at, in doing a deep dive into any company, you certainly have to do a deep dive as well into their competition and into that industry. It's impossible to look at a company in isolation. Most times, after analyzing that company, you have to go back to look into who the rivals of those companies are, what industry that company is in, and eventually, you, you not only study one company, but you end up studying a good number of companies and the industry that that company operates in. Now, if we have decided on doing a deep dive into Fidelity Bank, I think it's pertinent that we have an understanding of what the banking industry generally is, how banks generally make their money, the key numbers that you need to look out for when you're analyzing a bank. So eventually, I see this deep dive into Fidelity Bank as not just one into Fidelity Bank, but rather a, a wholesome view into what the banking industry portends and what the trends in looking into the future might hold for the banking industry. I envisage that this deep dive into Fidelity Bank is going to span a couple of episodes, at least two episodes. Um, the first episode, which is what we are on today, will probably just be an overview of the banking industry and the key numbers that you need to look out for when you're analyzing any bank whatsoever. And then maybe on the next episode, next week, we'll take a deep dive into Fidelity Bank in itself and its numbers over the past um, couple of years. Now, there are a couple of things that are quite peculiar about the banking industry. So when you're looking at the banking industry, just as an overview, there are a few things that you need to take cognizance of when you analyze any bank. Now, the first thing is that banks are in the business of buying and selling of money. Okay, So <laughs> I know that sounds counterintuitive or that sounds a little bit off the charts, but that's basically the business of a bank. A bank buys money from the public and sells that money to people who want to lend money from the bank. Okay, And basically, they make their money or they make profits off the spread of how much they buy these funds from the public 
and at what rate they are able to loan that money out to prospective investors or to people who have a business that need funds for one thing or the other. So because of that, because of the fact that banks buy and sell money, they are not in the production of any goods or any, uh, any good. So that means that banks do not have inventory, they do not have trade receivables and all those kind of stuffs that you see with the regular companies, companies that produce a particular good. So banks are a little bit different from that. Now, the second important point that I like to state about banks, and that's that banks play a very important and vital role in the economy of any nation. Okay, When it comes to how the, the government of the day or the central bank regulator of the banking industry, how they regulate the economy, we see that banks play a very vital role in this, in regulating the amount of money in circulation, in regulating a whole lot of things, interest rates, a lot of things come into play when we are particularly talking about the banking industry. Now, because of that, a good number of the things we see, even on this podcast, will be intertwined with you know the general economy and um, the state of things in Nigeria at the, at the second. So, now that we've gotten all that out of the way, let's go into what the financial statements of banks look like in general, and what are the key numbers that we need to look out for when we are looking at a bank. Now, personally, I believe that when analyzing banks, the balance sheet is the most important single aspect of the entire financial statements even much more important than the income statement, more important than the statement of cash flows. The balance sheet is the most important when it comes to a bank. So what are the key things that we need to look out for on the balance sheet of banks? Now, I'll start from the liability side. Banks get money from the public. Remember I said banks are into the business of buying and selling of money. So they get money from the public by people opening bank accounts, like opening a savings account and depositing their money in that savings account. People have access to their money. They can come in at any time, withdraw money from their bank account, deposit money into the bank account, and the bank insensitizes people to leave money in their account by paying an interest rate. That after you've left your money in the bank untouched or in your account untouched for a certain duration of time, the bank pays you a certain interest rate. Okay, So because of that, people want to deposit money in the bank, leave their money in the bank, and earn this interest. So it costs the bank a little money to recruit money from the system, to recruit money from the populace, even into the savings accounts. Okay, So we've mentioned one of the ways by which banks get money from the public, and that is through openings of savings accounts. The second part is what we call the demand deposits, or it can be likened to like the current accounts, which is like for corporates or for certain individuals, you can have a demand deposit, which is, is almost like a savings account. I would rather even call it maybe a current account. Okay, So it's basically the same thing. People putting money into the bank and then the bank pays an interest if you leave your money untouched or the longer, the, the longer you can leave your money without withdrawing the larger the amount of interest that you are likely to get. So we've talked about two sources of deposits that come into the banks. This is the savings account, the demand deposit, or the current account, in my own opinion. These two categories of funds, 
make up what we what the banks call CASA, which is like current and savings accounts. Banks that have a very strong brand, b- banks that are you know very popular that people like to bank with, they have a very large number of customers. This large number of customers translates to a larger amount of current and savings accounts, which also translates to a larger amount of deposits, you know, of people in their current and the savings accounts. The interest rates that accrues to people who leave their money in the bank is very, very low, almost abysmal. So it's very cheap for the bank to raise money through deposits in current and savings accounts. So the larger the bank is, the more appealing the bank is, the higher the likelihood that people will want to have current and savings accounts with them and the cheaper it will be for those banks to raise money to buy these funds from the public. Remember, they pay an interest in response to the deposit that people make into the bank, into their bank accounts. Okay. So two, we've talked about two sources of deposits or two sources of funds. The third I'd like to mention is term deposits. Now these are like fixed deposits. Okay, so in this type, people who have large amount of funds who don't want to just deposit those funds into their current or the savings accounts, they can approach the bank and say, okay, I have this large amount of sum of cash. I can give it to you, but I want a higher interest rate than you would have paid me if I just left it in my savings account. So these are fixed deposits. And what that means is that once you engage in one of these fixed deposits, you are going to leave that fund with the bank for a specified period of time in which you cannot touch that money. It can be for one month, it can be for three months, it can be for six months, it can be for one year. But you have an agreement with the bank. You give the bank that money and the bank will tell you the interest rates that they are going to pay to get that money off you. Usually it commands a higher interest rate as compared with savings and current accounts. Now, for banks that rely a lot on term deposits to raise the funds that they need, even to carry out their business, you discover that it costs them a lot more to buy these funds. And as it's just as I've explained, um, it's because the interest rate that they pay to people who want to put their money in a fixed deposit rather than putting it in the current or a savings account they need to be insensitized to a higher degree, which is why the interest rate is higher and it will cost the bank more to raise funds via fixed deposits. Now, what does this translate into? This means that banks, as I said, banks with a large brand, with a large following, that have a large amount of people with current and savings accounts, it's cheaper for them to raise money via the CASA than via these fixed deposit routes. So you will see smaller banks or banks that you know don't have good following, they tend to offer higher interest rates either on their on their current or their savings accounts or on their fixed deposits, just as a means of trying to raise more funds that they can use in doing their business. Another category in by which banks can raise money or banks buy money from the public is through the domiciliary accounts, which is like a foreign currency denominated account. So right there in Nigeria, you can have a bank account in which rather than dealing Naira, you deal in dollars or you deal in pounds. So those are all domiciliary accounts. So this is a source of foreign currency for the banks and they can use those foreign currency deposits to give out loans in foreign currency rather than in Naira. Now, all these four categories that we've talked about, the savings account, the demand deposit or the current account, 
the term deposit or the fixed deposit account, and then the domiciliary accounts. All these four groups make up what we call the total deposits that a bank has. Okay, And the reason why customer deposits to a bank is termed a liability, not an asset, and that's because the banks have to pay an interest on all these things. So it costs the bank something to keep those monies. Okay, So since it's costing the bank, it's a liability for the bank. And the people who own those monies will come to the bank one day to collect their money from the bank. So it's not really the bank's property. So it's a liability on the books of the bank. Another source that banks use in raising money is to borrow money. So they can borrow money from international banks. They can borrow money from other banks around them. So usually this is not a deposit, so it's not classified as part of the dep- those four groups that we've talked about. So this is a different way of raising money. So you need to watch the borrowing of the bank as well. For banks that you know rapidly expanding, banks that are trying to grow, they tend to borrow a lot of money you know, to, to fund this growth. An example of this would probably be Access Bank in Nigeria. If you look at their books, you'll find out that their borrowings seem to be um, quite high as compared to all the other banks. And it's just figures. It's because they are growing and they are expanding, you know, acquiring banks all over Africa. Now, I've explained the reason why it's important for us to understand the funding mix of every bank. And that's because big banks who rely a lot on CASA tend to have a lower cost of funds. So it costs them lower to raise funds. Unlike other banks that might not have a lot of following and would have to raise their interest rates in a way to insensitize people to bring their funds to them. So it will cost them more. So a bank that relies more on term deposits or fixed deposits to raise funds to transact business would have a higher cost of fund. So what do the banks do with these funds that they've raised from the public? The first thing is that because the funds actually belong to the public, it doesn't belong to the bank, the public can come at any time to ask for their money. So the banks need to be prepared to give the money back to the people when they demand for it. Okay? And it's unlikely that people come to the bank to request all of their money at once. So what the bank does is that under the regulation of the central bank, there's what we call the cash reserve requirements. The cash reserve requirements. And this is presently about 27.5%. So of all the money that the bank raises, the bank takes 27.5% and lodges it with the central bank or leaves it in their vault. So they leave that in liquid cash. And that's just so that they can meet their obligations of you know customers coming to the bank, wanting to withdraw money, wanting to liquidate their accounts. So the bank keeps that cash. So 27.5% is gone. That leaves the bank with about 72.5%. So what do they do with this 72.5% of deposits that they still have with them? They can loan those money out to people who want to borrow or who want to fund growth of their business. Or they can use those money to buy treasury bills, to buy certain money market funds. They can use that to just transact business okay, and make a profit on that. Okay, so the, the central bank has what we call the loan-to-deposit ratio. What that means is that the central bank regula- who regulates all the banks tell the banks that, okay, out of all the deposits you've gotten, there's a certain 
a certain percentage must be made out in loans to people, okay, to anybody that wants to borrow. So presently, the loan to deposit the loan to deposit ratio is about sixty five percent. So that means sixty five percent of all the deposits the, that the banks get, CBN expects them to loan that back into the economy. We say CBN expects them to loan that back into the economy. So you have sixty five percent the loan to deposit ratio. You have the twenty seven point five percent, which is the um, capital reserve requirement. Um, if you put those together, that will give you about 92.5%, which leaves the bank with about 7.5% of the deposits to trade, to transact business, to keep in the ATM machines, to use and do, you know, to fund their liquidity and to fund the daily business transactions that are that are carried out in the banks. Okay. Now, so we've talked extensively about the liability side of the balance sheet. The next part of the balance sheet that I would just like us to talk about is obviously the, the asset side of the balance sheet. So the important parts of the, of the asset side is, number one, the cash and balances with the central bank. What this line item means is that this is the amount of cash that the bank has in their vaults or sequestered with the central bank as part of their cash reserve requirement, Okay. The most important part of the assets section of the balance sheet is the loans and advances to customers. Loans and advances to customers. So this is where you'll find the loans that the bank has made out to its customers who can be corporate clients or can be individuals. You need to pay very good attention to these loans. The loans can be categorized into three stages, okay? So you have the stage one loans, stage two loans, stage three loans. The stage one loans are just loans that are performing. Those are loans that have been issued out where the people who borrowed money are paying their interests from time to time. They are paying the principal from time to time as the bank expects them to. Now, the stage two loans are loans that have begun to show some signs that maybe the borrower is struggling. Probably the person that lent the money is struggling to pay back the interest or struggling to pay back the principal. So these loans have not they've not yet defaulted. So they are still able to pay one way or the other, but they are struggling to do this. Now the stage three loans are loans in which the person has defaulted. And what that means is that the person that brought the funds has not paid interest or has not paid the principal. If it's an individual, I think it's a space in a space of three months. And if it's a corporate organization, it's a space of six months. So if they've not made any payment at all for six months for corporates or three months for individuals, that loan is classified as as defaulted. Okay. So that's a stage three loan. As an investor, you must keep your eye on the stage three loans. Okay, these are the loans that are termed the non-performing loans. Okay, so the, the person is the loan is not performing, it's not generating an interest, you're not getting your principal back. Every bank calculates the percentage of their non-performing loans, okay? So and that's gotten by dividing the non-performing loans by the total loan book. Okay, that will give you a percentage. Um I, I think the maximum non-performing loan a bank should have is about five percent. So all banks strive to have below 5% uh, 
uh, of non-performing loans. Okay. Now, why is it important that we keep an eye on non-performing loans? Okay. Ideally, the banks should do a lot of risk management. They should not just loan money out to anybody. They should watch, you know, check the business, check the cash flows of the person who is taking a loan to be sure that the person can repay that loan. Okay. When banks forget their primary business and just make loans out to anybody or don't do their deal diligence, they just make loans or for one reason or the other, the economy undergoes a downturn and people struggle, then the percentage of non-performing loans tend to go up. And obviously that's the bank losing quite a lot of money through that avenue. Now, another segment of the assets that I advise that you keep a close watch on is the intangible assets. Now, intangible assets are basically assets that you know cannot be touched with the hand that cannot be that are not tangible just as the name implies this can include the brand like how much the, the bank values its brand um, computer software and most importantly goodwill okay so you need to keep an eye on the intangible assets you, know, you don't want a bank that has very high intangible assets that won't be able to be sold or won't be able to use to raise cash if a problem comes to hand. So basically, that's all with the balance sheets. Um, those are the key points that I want you to note when you're looking at the balance sheets. On the liability side, you want to look at the um, customer deposits. You want to know how much deposits the bank is able to raise. You want to know the percentage of the CASA, that's current and savings accounts, as compared with the fixed deposits or as compared with the other borrowings that the bank is making to try and you know, raise money to undertake their business. And on the asset side, you want to look at the loans that the bank is making. Are they loaning out more money? What percentage of their loans are stage one, stage two, and stage three? For their stage three loans, are they making any recoveries? What are the rates of recoveries for stage three loans in the past? So those are all things that you need to be looking out, out for when you're analyzing a bank's balance sheet. Now, moving over to the income statement. This is the obviously the statement of profit and loss, which a lot of people pay attention to. However, for a bank, uh, my advice, as I've said earlier, is to pay more attention to the balance sheet. Now, the income statement, um, there are two main ways that the banks make money. The first is off their interest. Remember, we said banks make money off the spread of their interest. You know, if they are able to raise one million naira from people on the, you know, people depositing into their current and savings accounts, and they are paying them one percent interest per annum on this one million naira. They can turn that one million naira around and lend it out to other people who need money, you know, to finance their business. And they can do this at 10% or at 15% per annum. Okay. So the difference between the interest they are paying to the owners of the fund and they are receiving from the borrowers of the fund is called the spread. And this is how banks make their money. Okay. Looking at the income statement, you want to see how much money they are making from interest which is actually the primary you know business that banks engage in you want to pay attention to what is called the net interest margin which is like after they've gotten all the interest then 
you subtract all the interest expenses, everything it costs them to make that interest, um, to make that spread. So you subtract that and then you get your net interest margin. Now, the next broad part of a bank's income statement that you need to also pay attention to is the non-interest income. So this is, you know, other sources of income to the bank that is not interest-related. So this would be like fees and commissions, like like account maintenance, electronic banking fees, um, you know, um, you know all, all other income that the bank makes that is not directly from interest from their primary or their sole their sole source of income. Okay, now you want your bank to have a high net interest margin. But you also want them to have very good and stable and high non-interest income. Now, there's a reason for that, um, and that's because interest rates fluctuate. Okay, they can go up, they can go down. If the interest rate goes down, what that means is that the bank will not be able to charge a high interest to people who they loan out those money to. Okay, so if they are paying one percent interest on the one million to the people who deposited the money. If interest rate comes down, rather than being able to loan out the money at 15%, they now have to loan it out at 7%. So their spread has reduced. Their spread is now 7 minus 1%. So it's now 6%. Okay. So because interest rate fluctuates, you want the bank to have other sources of income aside from the interest so that it can you know, act as a shock absorber to fluctuations in interest rates. So generally, banks make more money when interest rates rises, and that's because they can charge a higher interest to people who borrow funds from them, and they can have a larger spread. And when interest rates drop, banks make less money, and that's because the spread between how much the funds cost them and how much they are able to make off people who borrow funds becomes smaller. Okay? A good example of this of this interplay between interest rates and the profitability of banks can be seen in the COVID period and the post-COVID period. During COVID, the CBN tried to stimulate the economy and they did this by reducing the interest rates. Okay? So by cutting down the interest rates, they are encouraging people to come to their banks and borrow money. Unfortunately, cutting interest rates means that you are reducing the spread that banks, you know, the net interest margin that banks can make off their profits. So because of this, we saw banks reporting lower net interest margin even in the first half of 2021. And that's simply just because interest rates have been lowered and the banks have had to renegotiate a lot of their loans downwards, okay? So that's just an example of the interplay between interest rates and profitability of banks and how the central bank can use interest rates, um, cash reserve requirements, loan-to-deposit ratios. The central bank can tinker with all those modalities in a bid to either stimulate the economy or take money out of the economy. Okay. Back to the income statement, we've talked about net interest margin We've talked about non-interest income and why it is important, why you want a bank that has good non-interest income, which can serve as a shock absorber to changes in the interest rate. 
The next thing you want to look at is the profits before tax and the profits after tax. You want to know how much the bank is actually making. Um, now, lay more emphasis on the profit after tax. And what that is, is you know you looking at the profits the bank has made from all this in all the income they've had, the interest income, the non-interest income, how much of all that has trickled down into profits. If we go back to the foundation, the foundational episodes of this podcast where we talked about competitive advantages, we've said that any company that has a strong competitive advantage, you know, is able to make high margins. Okay, they are able to transact business in a way that they can make a lot of profits. So basically, you want a bank that is able to make prof a large profit off the interest and the non-interest income. A good way to measure if the bank, whatever bank you are looking at, has a moat or has a competitive advantage is to look at the percentage of profit after tax as compared to the gross income of the bank. Okay, so you want a bank, you want to buy into a bank that is a leader in the banking industry, that has a large brand, that has a large moat, that is able to translate high gross income even into high profits. Okay. So you want to know the gross margins, you want to know the net margins of the bank. Um, the larger the net, the larger the percentage of the net margin, the, the more likely it is that that bank has a competitive advantage or has a strong moat. And you calculate this by dividing the profit after tax by the gross income. And you make that into a percentage. Okay, Gross income is your, your interest income plus your non-interest income, plus other income, plus the trading income that the bank makes. So all the income that comes into the bank forms your gross income. Okay, So the percentage of the profit after tax as compared with the gross income tells you what your net margins is. So you want to buy a bank or you want to own a bank with a high percentage of a net margin. So I believe this is just serves as a very good overview of what the banking industry operates like. Remember, we are all students in the, in the school of life, in the school of investing. So if I've made one mistake or the other, or if I've you know, mixed one or two terms together, just forgive me. Um, I'm happy to be corrected. It's all part of my learning process. Okay. So just to summarize, we've talked about the business of banking. And the business of banking is making money off interests, which is like the spread between what it costs them to raise the funds and how much they are making as interest off people who borrow the money to who they borrow the money to. We've talked about the liability side of the balance sheets, the important things to look out for, which are the customer the customer deposits. Uh, we've talked about the asset side of the balance sheet and the important things to look out for, which are the cash and cash reserves with the central bank. Uh, we've also talked about the, the loans to customers. And lastly, we've also talked about the intangible assets segment of the assets portion of the balance sheet. We've also majored on the income statements, talking about the interest income, the non-interest income, the gross income, the profit before tax and the profit after tax. And we've also talked about the, the net margins, which is like the percentage, what percentage of 
the gross income eventually filters down to profits. The larger the net margins, the more likely it is that that bank or that company has a moat and has a competitive advantage. Okay, so it's been a lengthy episode. I know it's <laughs> it's not usual for us to have episodes that are this lengthy, but just because I felt it's important for us to understand a few things before we dive into you know looking into the numbers coming out from Fidelity Bank. Um, I think it was important for us to go through all of this. Armed with this knowledge, hopefully by next week, when we delve into the numbers of Fidelity Bank, it will be easy for us to understand what we are saying and um, how we come to those conclusions that we reach during that episode. Thank you very much for listening. I hope I haven't bored you with my droning on and on. Well, thank you very much for listening. Um, If there are any questions, if there are any parts that you want me to clarify, just reach out to us either through any of our social media platforms or through our email address which you can find in the description of this episode. So see you same time next week where we'll be delving deeply into the numbers that have come out of Fidelity Bank. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day.